You've heard of the return of the Jedi. Today is return of the Habsburg. We have Edward Habsburg, who's written an excellent book, which I had the opportunity to, to read, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. And you may be thinking to yourself, hmm, monarchy. Taylor Marshall, you've been talking about that lately. Now you've got a Habsburg on the show. We've got seven rules for turbulent times. Will you be convinced of monarchy, of the emperor? Today to help me with that is Edward Habsburg. How are you, Edward? I'm very well. I'm sitting in my office in Rome, and I'm very happy to be on your show, Taylor. It's good to have you. Now, you are the diplomatic ambassador from Hungary to the Holy See. Yes, I am. And quite nervous right now because Pope Francis is going to pay our country of Hungary a visit in three days time. So very busy and very excited. Excellent. Well, we're going to get into how it is that the Habsburgs who have had excellent, excellent leadership at times and poor leadership at times uh, to give us rules for living, um, even though we're not emperors. And I think it's a great concept. I, I think it's provocative as you read it, um, your book, The Habsburg Way. Uh, you realize that these principles of a rightly ordered life and uh, ultimately Catholic piety are perennial and universal. And we're going to get into those. So what better way to begin is we'll pray together the Our Father, the Pater Noster. And you're good to go in Latin? Yes, all right, oremus nomini patris et fidi et spiritus sancti, amen. Pater noster, qui es in celi, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tuas, cut in cello et in terra. Pane nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, secut et nos dimitemus debitoribus nostris, ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos a mano, amen. Amen, nomini patris et fidi et spiritus sancti, amen. I love your Teutonic Latin. Awesome. It's got the... Yes. I love... It's got, it's got I love your American. Yeah, you know, the great, thing about, the great thing about Latin, Taylor, is that whoever speaks Latin, you always know where they come from. Yes. There is no original Latin accent, so yeah. you will always be able to tell where someone comes from when they speak Latin. Yes. I remember being in Rome once at Trinita, and the priest came, and he was he started the mass and I was listening and I was like, I have never heard this Latin. I'm so confused. I was like, he's not French. He's not Spanish. And then afterwards I asked and he said, Oh, he's, he's uh, from, I think he was from Portugal or Brazil. It was the Portuguese yes. Latin accent that I'd never heard before. All right. The Habsburg way. You had said something when you were you were in Texas. You were at the Blessed Carl Symposium, and I thought it, it it really resonated with everyone present. In that, there is a certain accountability in America. We like to boast in checks and balances. We have the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, and they're all supposed to be checking and balancing one another. But you had mentioned that there is sort of a natural check in monarchy, and I was wondering if you could maybe explain that for the audience. One of the, one of the great things of monarchy is, is that it's stable. Um, people that live in a monarchy have known the grandparents of the current king, have known the parents of the current king, and know that 
this king will be around for a while and then there'll be a son or a daughter who takes over. And this is, first of all, it gives stability. But the other and very important thing is it gives accountability. And um, say a politician today, there are very good politicians out there, but there is always a temptation to, to run your country for a while. And then with all the good connections you have, to get a nice plum job somewhere and earn lots of money. And you will never have to care again about the country that you were responsible for for a while. A monarch does not have this luxury. A monarch knows that not only I as a monarch will have to live with my decisions for the rest of my life, but I will put this on the shoulders of, of, of the one who follows me, my son or my daughter, will have to live with my decisions. And the other thing that I always point out is that uh, there are different ways into politics nowadays, how to become a, a leader. Um, but if you grow up as the son of a king um, or a queen, um, you, you grow up in a very different way. I had the privilege of getting to know a few of those current rulers in Europe now when they were princes in training, when they were young Jedis. Um, and, uh, I saw the training and the training is really service, 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 service. You learn, you get to know all the fault lines in your country. You get to know all the parties, the churches, all the problems. You see how your grandfather dealt with that, your father dealt with that. And, and then you have to deal with that yourself. And you will always take a deep breath before you decide on something. You will not go along with uh, current fads. You will not go along with what other people on a higher or similar level you will have to carry this if you're if you're a believer you will have to carry this in front of god your responsibility and that's quite something and it's something we've, we've we're not used to anymore and of course in america everything's different you never had a monarchy america is built on the myth of fighting tyrants and building up peace from from the grassroots building up a society just and good based on democracy um, but I just wanted to, in my book, uh, give people a chance to, to experience this feeling once, how it is to have this stability and to have, of course, there may be bad monarchs, but as I say, I've gotten to know, I would say, except for the English, perhaps, most of the monarchies now in Europe, uh, most of the current uh, monarchs, and I have to say, wow, 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 wow. It's a life of service. You don't live for yourself. You don't live for luxury. You don't try to get as much money out of it as you can, and you can't steal away. You you have to face what you what you decide. So that's a good thing. And in our very turbulent times, where we have in some countries the impression that um, that that prime ministers change faster um, than uh, than trousers, uh, this is this is something that at least we should give it a thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the points of my book. Yeah. And but, if, if... Taylor, the book is not, it's not about monarchy. It's mostly about seven principles of my family that you can apply in your life and that we can apply in our society without it being a monarchy. Um, it, it, I think every one of us can read this book and read, read the stories of how the Habsburgs handle these different topics and, and tell themselves, well, I... I could try to do that too. That doesn't seem too bad as an idea. Why don't I see it more often in our society nowadays? Yes. 
Why don't we jump into that? Why don't we go in? What what are some of the rules? Let's go into the the first rule or whichever rule you want to share. Well, when I wrote this book, I I sat down and I thought, so what would the seven central principles of our family be? If you hear the word Habsburg, uh, the first thought that you usually get would be Catholic and would be family, many children, uh, or Habsburg jaw, depending if you... <laughs> If you uh, have a more weird sense of humor, yes. Habsburg yeah, I thought about preparing. I thought about preparing an image of the Habsburg jaw. I was like, no, the audience already knows what the Habsburg jaw looks like. Yes, yes, and if you Google Habsburg on on on, on Google, uh, Habsburg jaw is one of the first things that they offer. Yes. <laughs> um, right. But I, I also I also speak about the Habsburg jaw in my book, and uh, we'll we'll talk about this a bit later, perhaps, mm. because it's interesting. Um, but uh, but mostly the first rule that I give is get married and have lots of children. Yes. Now, get married, quite a few people still go that way. Have lots of children, only strange people like you uh, in Texas uh, or, or me are doing, but it's really worthwhile. I can tell from my private experience of 27 years of marriage, having lots of children is the greatest gift you can give yourself, your spouse, and also to the children, giving them lots of siblings changes their entire life. Building a family of that size will give you, it's like a fortress. Um, you have a safe space where you can hand on your values, your faith, um, all the virtues that you have to learn for life. And my theory is you learn all the virtues that you need for a good running democracy around the dinner table. I think you have quite a lot of children too, if I remember correctly. And uh, if you all sit around the table, everybody has to learn to look after the smaller ones, the weaker ones. So my theory is for a state, it makes sense to invest in big families because they will build a stable and good and just and merciful and solidaric society. This is the message from, of the first point. Now, then I go through the history and I talk about many, many of those Habsburg marriages and uh, family experiences and lots of children over the centuries and explain why it is something great. Uh, I am also the Hungarian ambassador uh, to the Holy See, so I speak a lot about family uh, in my everyday meetings, about our family politics. And uh, before that, I was a spokesman for a Catholic bishop in Austria, and he was the bishop for family. So this topic is in my heart. But most of all, there were thousands of Habsburgs over the last 800 years, and uh, all of them had lots of children. And we have a joke in the family, which is Habsburg is, is a plural world. There is it's no singular. There is not <laughs> never one Habsburg. There's always lots of them. As you can see in, uh, in a photograph that I took, uh, which unfortunately I can't share now, where you see when the Habsburg family visited Pope Francis in 2016. And after our meeting with him, we were on the Via della Conciliazione, just in front of St. Peter's. And the street is full with Habsburgs from one side to the other. <laughs> and um, uh, a high Vatican diplomat uh, looked at the picture and said, well, Ambassador, it looks like your family is going to be around a long, long time. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I heard Jordan Peterson once say, two brains are better than one. And when you marry, you have two minds. And of course, we as Catholics believe 
there's the there's the male way of thinking and the female way of thinking. We're not embarrassed to say that. We believe in in roles and that God created male and female. He created them. And so when you have when you're married, you have that advantage over everyone. If you have a a good pious Catholic woman and a good pious Catholic man, they bring together two valid helpful ways of looking at the world and then you introduce to that children and if they are formed properly their conscience and their mind they're educated properly as catholics as virtuous now you have a whole group a team that's all working together in synergy and if you can maintain that now over one generation two three eight twelve as the habsburgs have done you gain a great advantage in this life and in the next. Yes, I absolutely agree. And one lesson in my book, uh, in the chapters on marriage, is that even if the fate of a Habsburg archduchess in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, 18th century was mostly to get married off somewhere and establish relations between countries by marriage, a surprisingly large number of these marriages where you met your spouse on the day of your wedding very often mm-hmm. um, were very happy marriages because um, you usually married Catholics. So you didn't marry, you, you married people who had your faith, your outlook on life, who had your ideas about family and marriage, about duty, about virtue. And this is an incredible strong basis. So the central um, secret of the Habsburg family idea is not marry your cousins, as they did at a certain time. Uh, We don't do that anymore. But is really marry like-minded people with the same faith, with the same ideas. Try to marry holy people. and, and, And you will have not only for yourself a wonderful life, for your children and your spouse happiness, but also further generations that will that will live the faith, for instance. So marriage is the first point is get married and have many children. Second point, of course, is be Catholic and live your faith. Nowadays, we live in a time where some people think that it's enough to be baptized to be a devout Catholic. Um, As some people also think that it's enough to die to go to heaven. Um, But one of the points of my book is you have to live your faith, really live it. And uh, there were a few Habsburg rulers who did not live their faith in the way that the others did. And those were always very sad examples. While on the other hand, we had Habsburg rulers that were example to their entire countries and brought many people to faith by their example. So that's, that's a lesson from our family history is live your faith. Now, most people in the United States if you ask them which Habsburg do you know and appreciate, they usually go for Blessed Emperor Karl, um, who in the eyes of the world is a loser because mm. he took over uh, the empire in Austria one and a half years, uh, two years into the First World War, after a nearly endless, nearly 70 years of rule of Franz Joseph. And he took over the empire, he lost the war. He lost the empire. He failed twice to return to Hungary and to take his crown back that was still his. And and in the end, he died in exile. 
So you would say the ultimate loser in the eyes of the world. But he's one of the greatest we had. And when you look at his life, and in my book, I look at these seven principles, he has lived most of these principles in his life as a family father, as a Catholic, and all the other points. He is the example in our family, how to live your faith and be a real Catholic monarch. And therefore, he's very popular. I remember when we met in <coughs> at the conference in, in Dallas, there were 700 people in that room. Most of them were young, lots of families, many children, and they were touched by a ruler, a monarch, a tyrant, so to speak, um, from 100 years ago uh, that didn't win any awards during his life, but was a giant of faith. Habsburgs were always Catholic. There were Was there ever a one, Protestant two, one? Uh, well, that, that depends on how you define Protestant. Um, <laughs> the Habsburgs were, were very, very Catholic up until Ferdinand I, who was the brother of uh, Charles V. And this was exactly the time when Reformation crashed into Europe and, um, and, and the whole empire was in turmoil because half of the princes suddenly followed this new line. And um, you had three Habsburg rulers, one after the other, who were pretty weak source when it came to Habsburg faith. Uh, that was, that was uh, Maximilian II, Rudolf I, who lived in Prague, and his brother Matthias. Under these three rulers, Protestantism spread everywhere in Europe, and Maximilian had uh, a Luther Bible on his, on his nightstand. And they say that he stopped going to mass after half of his, of his rule. And he declined the sacraments on his deathbed. So wow. if that's not, uh, that's not tough. <coughs> I don't know what this, I'll have a, a sip of water. I'll be with you in a second. Yeah, go ahead. Very good. <laughs> yes. So, and Rudolf, Rudolf, his son had a very similar, very similar situation. He was an unhappy man and probably suffering of depressions. But he also declined the sacraments on his deathbed. Um, that, that's the so-called Catholic Habsburgs. But, yeah. but at the same time, you had family members in other parts uh, of the Habsburg lands that were shining lights of Catholic faith. One of them about whom I wrote in my, in my First Things article is called Magdalena. And she, she was, um, ah, she was fantastic. Um, she was the daughter of uh, Ferdinand I, and she, when she was young, she was painted by Archimboldo, famous painting of her, she's beautiful. And she came to her father and told her, I want to be a nun and found a monastery. And she, he said, no way, I'm going to marry you off and that's it. Your <laughs> youngest sister, she's a weekly, she can be, go to monastery, I need you for marriage. And then her, her uh, confessor, who was St. Peter Canisius, Ooh. Jesuit, strongly strongly encouraged her and then she and two of her sisters convinced the father and they were allowed to found the monastery not only did she do that and helped counter reformation in the lands of tyrol but she convinced two of her brothers to spread this too and she helped organize a very important conference in munich between the envoy of the pope the nuncio the bavarian duke and two habsburg archdukes 
1572, I think. Uh, and with that conference, the Counter-Reformation in Austria began. So nice. sometimes the emperor is not as good, then you have other family members. That's why family is important and it's important to have lots of children. Yes. Yes, you mentioned uh, the vocation to be a nun. Were there any, were there many Habsburgs who, who went on into ecclesiastical life as priests, bishops, cardinals? <laughs> yes, up to a certain point. You can really tell when enlightenment crashed into the Habsburg family. We had priests, nuns, bishops up until around the year 1800. And from then on, up to my brother, who became a priest 200 years later, there were no more priestly vocations in the Habsburg family. You must imagine hmm. nearly 200 years in a family with many children with no priestly vocation. So I would say that the Habsburgs had a very high Catholic time before the Reformation, during the Reformation, a very difficult time. After the Reformation in Baroque times, Ferdinand II, Leopold I, you had some of the most shining Catholic Habsburgs. And after Enlightenment came and the 19th century began, there was a very quiet time of, of, of Catholic faith, always present, always present. The emperors were always Catholic in the 19th century, but it wasn't as visible, it wasn't as strong and as, um, as, as center as before. And then I think at the end of the Habsburg rule, we had the big last shining light, uh, blessed Emperor Karl. Today, I would say most Habsburgs are, well, all Habsburgs are Catholic and quite a, a large number of those are devout Catholics with lots of children. So we live these values still. Um, we interact on a WhatsApp group where we, where we communicate daily. Um, and I thank God I know quite a lot of my cousins. So that will be the first two points is, um, is uh, get married, have many children and uh, be Catholic and live your faith. And I think if you have those two, you are already, already quite, yes. quite good in your life. Now, I have a question here. And by the way, we will, we will take some questions and comments. But this question is from Leslie, and, and she's confused about this uh, denying of sacraments on their deathbeds. She says it seems like it would be especially important to receive them on death. Um, can you maybe speak to that? Of I mean, most Catholics, even if you're a nominal, barely you go to Mass on Christmas and Easter, would think, oh, wow, if I could get the sacraments as I'm dying, I would just go for that. Explain to us the, the, the I guess, I, is depravity the, the right word? I mean, this is a very uh, hard sign for someone to make on their deathbed. Yes. Um, first of all, uh, Leslie, you will, you will be thrilled by the last chapter of my book, which is called Die Well. And this is just about the way Habsburgs, in a very, very impressive way, face death, prepared for death, and live their death. And you will see that most of the Habsburgs did exactly what you just suggested, and very consciously. Most Habsburgs lived with death in front of their eyes. They were aware that the last moment of your life decides about your eternity, not just your life, but also the way you die decides on eternity, and you have to prepare for that your entire life. And most Habsburgs knew that. I think Ferdinand, uh, Maximilian II, definitely wanted to make a point. In his heart, I think he felt to be a Protestant. When they offered him to call a priest, he said, my priest is in heaven. 
this is definitely Protestant ideas. And the problem was that his father hadn't paid attention and his first educator, the first teacher of Maximilian was a close friend of, of Luther. They only found out later when he already had his, done his damage. Um, Rudolf II was a, was a perturbed mind. He, was a, he was a, a, had a very sad life. And, uh, but with him too, I think he just didn't see the importance. And they really backed him, implored him. Uh, on the other hand, Joseph II, who did some really horrible things uh, to the Catholic Church during his time, his 10 very short years of emperor, emperor, he very clearly turned towards sacrament and uh, his confessor when he knew his death was coming and he prepared. So uh, these were two very sad exceptions, really, um, in the Habsburg family. And, but I want to speak about them because uh, you're never guaranteed uh, in a family to, to all live the same way. Um, but you, you're absolutely right. It, it's shocking. And I wanted to put it into my book because it shocked me when I found out about it. And it encouraged me to pray for them. Yes. Yes. All right. What's, what's the third rule? Ah, this is a very important one. I, I, I try to teach um, my readers the word subsidiarity. Ah. And um, it's called believe in the empire and in subsidiarity. Now, empires have a bad rap in our, in our, in our society. I, in my book I write, I blame George Lucas for it. Our idea of empire is from Star Wars, where you have an evil, evil cackling <laughs> emperor controlling with terror and stormtroopers storm an entire galaxy, people terrified until a, a, a band of rebels finally finally stands up against against the empire. And um, the Habsburg Empire was something very, very different. Um, the Holy Roman Empire and later on the Austro-Hungarian Empire were built on a very different principle. And that was subsidiarity. Um, now, without using that word, uh, Emperor Charles V already, uh, when writing to his son Philip II in the 16th century, puts it, puts it in, in a nutshell by saying, if you rule over several different countries, you better respect their mores, their languages, their habits, their rights, their legal systems and their institutions, or you are in deep trouble. And this is the point, subsidiarity, the principle that the lower level should take care of the things locally and that the higher level, the federal level, so to speak, in the States, should only interfere if the lower level cannot deal with it. This is a very important principle. And in the Habsburg Empire, the emperor had no power. He had a very high uh, reputation. He was seen as um, something sacred, but he had no armies, he had no budget, he had no capital, and he could only win by convincing and by getting countries together, by bringing about peace. So subsidiarity is what makes, in my opinion, the United States strong. You are United States. In theory, your federal level should be rather weak and the state should be strong and even stronger should be the family and the township. This is how you were built. And the Habsburg monarchy was very sim similar. Um, and whenever the Habsburgs tried to centralize, to create a centralized empire with one language and one center controlling everything, this is under Joseph II um, at the end of the 18th century and also 
in the first years of Franz Joseph after the 1848 revolution, it always went wrong. It always went wrong. It led to suffering. It led to re rebellion and revolution. And um, that's one of the central points of my book is to say that Hungary taught the Habsburgs this truth very much when they forgot it. Um, you have to respect the lower level. You have to respect, for instance, in the European Union, the European Union nowadays sometimes has tendencies to try to interfere. For instance, in Hungary, we made, for instance, a law that protects children from LGBT gender ideology around schools. And when we introduced this law, Brussels freaked out. The European countries yelled. We got in trouble with all of Europe, but we did, simply did what we do. We, we used our sovereignty, and that's the sovereignty of a sovereign nation, to decide according to our laws on something. And this is, this is the way the Habsburg Empire worked, is trying to respect the local customs, the local laws, the institutions. And that's why believe in the empire and in subsidiarity does not mean you have to believe in monarchy. It means you have to believe in this all important principle. And I want to say something important now at the end of this point. Subsidiarity is the absolute antidote to globalism. The idea that forces far above democratic legitimation, or even far above our nation, might decide on huge um, political decisions without the normal citizen even being involved, without our politicians sometimes even having a say, this is the contrary. What we need is, is subsidiarity, local decisions, and respect uh, for the local institutions. And that's a strong message of the Habsburg Empire and of my book. Do you think it's a, a helpful comparison to look at the, the Habsburg Empire versus what most I would say most Americans, when you talk about empire, they think of the British empire. And, yes. and, and then of course there's all these, this, this ideas of colonization and of destroying cultures and imposing English and the Anglican, everything. Is there a, is there a counter comparison that you think would be helpful for the American audience when you talk about, the Habsburg and subsidiarity versus the way maybe the the British Empire operated. I I wouldn't I wouldn't compare it with the British Empire because the British Empire had many many elements of what I just said, and and also difficult elements. What I would compare it to is is something like the Russian Empire. Um, if you have if you found an empire and you have the luxury from the beginning to have one core nation and one core language, then your temptation to subdue neighboring countries and impose your ideas, your language, and your central ideas onto them is very, very strong. The Habsburgs from the beginning were always, when the first Habsburg became Holy Roman Emperor in 1273, Rudolf, he immediately had to deal with a plethora of tiny kingdoms, dukedoms, um, princes, languages, laws that he had to control, balance and keep in peace. This is what I'm talking about. So uh, we have we have uh, an, an, and this is the absolute antidote to nationalism. Um, 
my th one of my theories in the book is a nation uh, has a right to be a nation and to be sovereign. But matureness in a nation shows in its ability to participate in something supernatural if the supernatural entity respects the sovereignty of the single states. So yes, working together above national level is good, but trying to install something centralistic on above national level is bad. I, I never studied political philosophy, so you see, my, I'm looking for words. I'm just, yeah. I'm just a diplomat. No. But this is a very important principle. And, and, and you could tell, for instance, during the very difficult last two or three years, in the states some many of us in europe look to the states as an example because single states could decide to do politics different than the federal level did because you are a country built on subsidiarity and on respect of the lower level i don't know whether i expressed that correctly because i'm not a I'm not no that's a, correct a i mean our, our our nation is is a a plurality it's in the plural the united states plural so that shows yes. that we did have a, we still retain it, but it's less and less, but we did have very much the principle of subsidiarity that we are 50 states working together uh, through a fetus or a covenant in Latin. Sadly, that's not as much yes. as it used to be, but it, it, it does in a way hearken to this idea of the local level should have the preeminence in making the local decisions as, as far as possible. Good. It's okay, also, so it's also uh, it's also Catholic social teaching. It's it makes sense. It makes sense. They're simply closer to the to the things, and uh, yeah. So uh, you know, of course, uh, Taylor, you're in Texas, right? Um, Texas is is old Habsburg territory. Yes. Uh, because the first the first governor of Texas was put there by the Spanish Habsburgs. Yes. And there are a few a few states in the United States that we consider old Habsburg territories. Yep. Um, just saying, just saying. No, yeah, and there's, and and there's the very strong uh, Germanic presence in Texas as well, especially in Central Texas. Yeah. Uh, you still see yes. German signs, German all over. Actually, Fredericksburg, you'll see German everywhere. So, yeah, that that legacy both of the of the Spanish and the German is is present here. Yes. All right, number four. Number four. Um, stand for uh, law, justice, and your subjects. Now, uh, people usually think that uh, you have to fight tyrants and sometimes forget that kings and emperors were based on the assumption that they would stand for law, justice, and their subjects. So in that chapter, I not only try to give some examples of why the Habsburgs were very law-abiding, respected laws very seriously, and uh, where many of them were lawyers themselves and worked very hard on legal texts. But also I give examples for Habsburg members of the family who really looked after their subjects and were, were, were emperors of the people. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice read. It's a nice read. This is for me the occasion to make lots of publicity for, for my branch of the Habsburgs. Um, if you read my book, you will be able to understand the, the four different branches we have in the family. Um, so whenever you meet a Habsburg, you would first ask them, from which branch are you? And you would already prove that you know something about Habsburg history. <laughs> but um, there, was, there was one generation of the Habsburgs that I call the glorious generation. Those were the Archdukes, brothers of Franz II, 
children of Leopold II of Tuscany, around 1800. They were all over Europe and they really tried to bring the filtered and good ideas of enlightenment to their peoples, tried to serve their peoples, uh, said things like, if, you, if I ever break my promises to your laws, you may take up the sword against me and things like that. So stand for law, justice and, and, and your people. Uh, another point that I make is um, uh, know who you are and live accordingly. This is a strong call to tradition. Know your roots, know your traditions, but also know what it means to be a man or a woman and live accordingly. Um, and uh, I speak there about Habsburg traditions like the Golden Fleece and, um, and like the Spanish uh, court ceremonial. So that's, I think form is very important. I thought that form and protocol are something boring and dull. I was rather, um, rather um, bored by these things until I came as a diplomat to the Holy See and realized that form and protocol are things that create a space where you can interact and that protect the, the, the smaller ones from the powerful ones. So yes, I speak about tradition here. Then I have uh, be brave in, in battle or have a good general. And I speak, this is more a historic chapter. I'm trying to tell about the Habsburgs that, that were present in some of the most important moments of history on the battlefield, like uh, Juan de Austria in Lepanto. And Leopold I was not fighting before Vienna in 1683 uh, to defeat the Turks, but had good generals, had a brilliant ally in Jan Sobieski of Poland, but organized the alliance that beat the Turks, for instance. And of course, Blessed Emperor Karl, who not only fought for peace from the first moment of his rule, but also knew the horrors of the trenches and had fought in the First World War. And, uh, and, and the last and most important point is die well. Die well is really, I give several examples for Habsburgs who really died well. And, you know, when I, when I wrote that chapter, I was always thinking, oh, if I could, if I could have a death like that. Um, I'll tell one story that most people don't know, uh, and it's a very touching one. Uh, Marie, Marie Antoinette gets a lot of bad rap. Most people think that she said, uh, let them eat cake. She never did. It's proven that she never did. Uh, but it would be so nice because it would uh, fit our prejudice against rulers. Um, Marie Antoinette was one daughter of Maria Theresia, and she was married off to marry the Dauphin, uh, the, the future king of France. She, she came to France. It wasn't easy. She tried to incorporate into that very close society of the French court. And for many years, she was a Catholic, though um, su sometimes superficial and mediocre person perhaps. And then the revolution came and the king was decapitated and, uh, and then she was preparing for death and she was praying all the time. She was deeply devout. And then the most horrible thing happened because as all Habsburg, she was aware that you have to confess before you go to your death. When she knew she was going to be killed, she begged for a priest. And the revolutionary uh, responsibles were only ready to grant her um, uh, a priest that had sworn the oath to the revolution. But those were excommunicated. So Marie Antoinette really wanted to go to confession. They, they never allowed her. And the story about that part of her death, we only know from the 
from the executioner of Paris, Charles-Henri Sanson. He wrote it in his autobiography, which is a brilliant read. It's uh, basically all, the, all the, the heads he chopped off during the revolution. And, um, and he describes, you know, how those last 20 minutes on the cart when they rolled towards, towards the guillotine went and the conversations he had and how these people died. And, and he also describes Marie Antoinette. Now, you know the moment that um, the painter David made a hasty sketch of Marie Antoinette on her way to her execution. And Henri Sanson sat beside her on that cart rolling through the, uh, across the cobblestones in Paris to their execution. And he said she was very nervous. She was looking around at the houses all the time and she was unhappy, very unhappy. And he didn't understand why. And then she drove by one house, she looked up and she was in peace. And she was in peace for the rest of the trip to the guillotine. And when she walked up, he helped her up. Unfortunately, she stepped on his toes and she said, Pardonnez-moi, um, I'm sorry that I did that. And then she went up and she, she died. And he never understood what had happened. And after the revolution, a family of Catholics who had been sort of in the underground at that time, told him the story, said, because she couldn't get a confessor, um, Catholics organized that at one window around along the road, a clandestine Catholic bishop would be standing and he would give her an absolution in extremis. And when she saw him, she knew it was good. Yeah. And that, in a nutshell, is the attitude of the Habsburgs towards death. I want to add another one. Um, in 1740, more or less, uh, this is in a letter by um, uh, Franz Stefan of Lothringen. He's the husband of Empress Maria Theresia. They had 16 children and they were a great family. But he was a Freemason, the only Freemason we had in the family. Uh, and uh, and he was a more of a humanistic Christian, you know, he was sort of more like love each other and be nice. Um, and then, <laughs> sounds familiar. Um, sounds so familiar. Well, <laughs> I said it sounds happens, so familiar. Yes, always a temptation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, um, and then smallpox came to Vienna. And when you had smallpox at the time, you either died or you survived and your face was scarred and your beauty was gone. And, uh, and, and several, caught it in, in, the, in the castle. And uh, uh, Franz Stefan of Lothringen writes this in his letter. That he was so deeply touched because his, I think, 10-year-old daughter got smallpox. She, she learned that she had it and she had fever. And the first thing she asked for was a priest, was a priest to make a life confession. And that is impressive because you, you've got your priorities right, even when you're a 10-year-old Habsburg. And we should all have our priorities right. We should prepare for death and we should be ready and we should ask God the grace for a good death. And uh, because the Habsburgs knew that the way they died would be watched. They didn't live for themselves. They knew that the subjects, the court, everybody know, knew the way they affronted death. So that's that's one of the many, many, many stories in my, in my little book that uh, I strongly encourage you to read. Can you tell the one about Blessed Carl when they're trying to get his son to leave the room and he stops and he wants his son there? The words he oh, says. This is a I mean, good that, one. That was always, that's a good one. It's also, also a tough one. Blessed Carl died over, over several weeks and he was very, in a very bad state. He carried this, this, this pain and this suffering and he offered it up for his people. I also asked you, Taylor, 
how many of our politicians would offer up their life for their country and their people nowadays. It's a bit unfair, but, but he did it. He offered it up. He said, I, I have to suffer so much so that my people have peace and come together. And, uh, and when he was really about to die, he called in his, his, his son, who was a boy of 10 or 12 years then. And he said, call him in. And they wanted to send him out because he was really breathing hard. It was, it was very terrible. He said, no, I want him to stay. I want him to see how an emperor dies. And um, there you have it in a nutshell. That's the entire attitude is a Christian death, but a death where you show that it's a part of your life. Your death is a very important moment in your life. It's not something to push away and to fight, but when God sends it, it's there and you live it. Yes. Would you take some questions from the eager audience? Very gladly. There's one here. I, I've lost the name on it. Uh, it's because there's so many comments and questions. But someone asked, "How were how was a Habsburg chosen to be emperor? Was he selected by the Pope?" And it's a lot more complicated than that. Maybe you can clarify that for the audience. Well, it's it's usually quite simple. Uh, the okay, okay, but you're right. The question is more complicated. Um, you have to distinguish between when the Habsburgs were emperor of Austria-Hungary, then it was simply primogeniture. The male eldest became emperor, even to the point that the male eldest, when he was like uh, Ferdinand, Emperor Ferdinand, uh, who ruled after Francis II, and he was simply a bit handicapped. He was simple in his mind, very gentle, but very simple. He still became emperor because he was the firstborn. Um, but for the Holy Roman Empire, it was different. For the Holy Roman Empire, you had a circle of prince electors who were princes and bishops of the most important dioceses and kingdoms within the empire. And they elected, they elected the emperor. And then, you're absolutely right, there was the point where the pope either acknowledged the emperor or even um, consecrated the emperor, anointed him. This happened up to a certain point after that, not anymore. But in the beginning, in, in fact, the, the emperor was crowned by, by the pope and anointed with the holy oils. Um, but in reality, it's always the eldest in the family that gets the job uh, of Habsburg emperor. So it, people always ask me, so will you ever be emperor if the empire comes again? And I always say I would have to kill about 80 to 90 male Habsburgs. <laughs> that would be quite a massacre. And there would be very few left that I could sort of be head of the family above because I'm a really minor Habsburg from a young line and uh, I will never be emperor. <laughs> now, someone's asking, what's your opinion on the Netflix show, The Empress? Oh, dear. <laughs> um, I, would, I would put this, this show firmly in the realm of science fiction. Wow. It has next to nothing to do with the historical facts. It's quite depressive, I have to say. Now, as, as, as much as the old sissy movies about Empress Elizabeth with Romy Schneider were uh, a bit of a romantic fantasy, they were far closer to the facts. And they're beautiful and wholesome. And for your family, the Empress is not wholesome, not at all. Mm. And I, I watched the trailer once, and then I relied on comments by people who watched the first episode. And they said, stay away. Yes. 
Another good question here uh, by Kaminas. He asked, why did the Habsburgs have the power to veto a pope? This is something that a lot of people probably don't know, but it is an interesting anecdote in the history of Catholicism. I think that the Habsburgs were not the only Catholic rulers that had uh, the power to veto a pope, but they were the last and let's ones explain, to use Let's it. explain what that means. Not just veto like a pope's encyclical, but to veto an election no. or a candidate. Yes. What, what usually happened was that if um, a Catholic ruler had a problem uh, with uh, a potential candidate for papacy, they would usually, through a cardinal present at that conclave, then make it be known to the other cardinal electors that there is a veto on this person by that Catholic ruler. And uh, the Habsburgs, as I said, did this, I, I honestly have to say, well, I don't know how often it happened in history, because I suppose even the Habsburgs hesitated to interfere with their conclaves. Um, but the last time it really happened was at the election of Saint Pope Pius X. Um, the cardinals were aiming at, uh, yes, the cardinals were aiming at Cardinal Rampolla, who was the Secretary of State. And, uh, well, <laughs> There are several theories why Emperor Franz Joseph didn't want him, but he uh, then interfered through the person of a Polish cardinal who made it known to, to the other cardinals that there was a veto on Rampolla. Well, some people say it's because Rampolla was a Freemason. Others say because simply Rampolla was too close to the French and uh, Franz Joseph didn't want to have an, a pope that was too close to the French. Be it as it may, we will never know that in detail. Um, the cardinals didn't elect Rampolla. They were furious at the first moment, furious, um, uh, all of them. They felt this an interference into their rights, but they respected um, the, the, the veto. And then they elected a pope that later became one of the greatest saints of the 20th century, uh, Pope Pius X who very few months after his election to the papacy abolished the right of the Habsburgs to interfere in papal elections. So we can only hope for a future pope to bring this reasonable uh, principle back. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you to the Habsburg family for vetoing Rampol and giving us uh, Pope Pius X. Great gift. Another, another interesting fact about the connection between the Catholic Church and the Habsburg family is that on Good Friday there was a prayer for the Imperial family, Habsburg family, and also during the chanting yes. of the Exalted on Holy Saturday there was also a prayer for the Imperial family. And I also read somewhere I don't know if this is true that during a solemn High Mass the uh, the Emperor would sit beyond the altar rail with the clergy. Inquire. Have you ever heard of this? It's possible. It doesn't sound very unreasonable to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I sometimes get get direct messages or tweets from people who tell me that the prayer for the emperor has been sung in our Easter <laughs> yeah. uh, trigger. I, I never answer to that because yeah. <laughs> it's a touchy subject. But um, but it's it's very present, and you can find it in old prayer books. Um, yeah. Yep. All right. I'm going back in here for y'all that have questions and comments. Everyone's saying this is a great interview. Time well spent. They're loving it very much. Um, 
going through here. Okay, what do you think? Uh, Nancy asks, what do you think of Mary Antoinette on PBS? And a lot of people don't understand. They think Mary, they don't know that Mary Antoinette was a Habsburg, that she was most an Austrian. People, most most pe- people don't seem to know that. They don't know that. It is, it's very you good. Well, Everyone knows Mary Antoinette, but they don't know she's a Habsburg. So what is, I've never seen the PBS version. Have you seen the PBS version? I've only seen the, 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 the Coppola version, Sophia Coppola version, which was okay. beautiful. And uh, I suppose partly correct and partly showing her as very vain and superficial. And I don't think it caught, it ever caught the, the great relationship between this couple because they were both very devout Catholics and, and they loved each other very much. But I haven't seen uh, the PBS. I rarely watch TV series about historic personalities. TV series nowadays seem to be more about topics re- relevant to our time um, than about the historic personalities. Um, you can now have historic characters uh, changing race and uh, coming from different places and uh, swapping gender and. This is all too complicated for me. I'm too old-fashioned for this. Yes. Well, we have um, Samantha. She says no to the show on PBS. It is woke history. And she also adds that she has a daughter named for Mary Antoinette. So I'm going to wow. trust, trust Samantha's judgment on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a good question is the town habsburg named after the emperor chicken or chicken or egg chicken or egg very very good question um i would say the family is named after it's not a town habsburg is is a castle it's a ruin of a castle in the swiss canton of argau not too far away from zurich you can go there and visit and you should definitely do because they don't only sell hamburgers, but also Habsburgers in ah. the cafeteria. <laughs> um, it was built uh, around a thousand years ago by uh, my ancestor. I think I believe it was Guntram the Rich or his son. And uh, it was called Habsburg, which may either mean Habichtsburg, which is um, Castle of the Falcon, or it comes from the word Habs, which was a, for, a ford across the river there. And we, we have our name from that castle. So there is really um, an original castle Habsburg in Switzerland. And it, it, it shows you our history because we, we originated around between Switzerland, France and Germany in that corner of the world. And we're counts in Switzerland. Um, up until the first of us became Holy Roman Emperor. And then very quickly after that, uh, got Austria. And then the Habsburg slowly moved over to Austria or were thrown out of Switzerland in two battles. We have to add that. Um, but yes, the Habsburg is... And if you, ever, if you ever find the time to read my other Habsburg book, which is a, is a book for children called Dubby the Double Eagle, a fun little children's book about a double, double-headed eagle, um, the Habsburg castle plays a very important role in that book, especially at the end. So you will learn more, more about that. Yes, and I, re- I was just looking at your book this morning on uh, Dubby. It's, a, it's an illustrated children's book that kind of gives you a, a bird's eye view of Habsburg 
uh, lore. It's very good. Now, this kind of this is there's another question here coming in from Angel Tobit, who's calling you out on your on your name. She said, "I thought it was Habsburg with a P. What's this Habsburg with a B?" You you have quoted directly from my introduction into the book. This is a very good question. When I was young on Twitter, I had a tendency to be very very cruel to people who wrote Habsburg with a P, which is, as I learned later on, I had to humbly accept the accepted way of writing our family name since several hundred years in the English language. So this is not something new or misspelling, but at least since the 17th century in the English speaking world, you write Habsburg with a P. I think because the combination BSB is very unusual in English. And it's easier for English-speaking people to, to get the P and say Habsburg. And we, of course, in the German-speaking world, we are used to Habsburg with a B. And we write ourselves with a B, but you can use P if you want to. And, um, and uh, a friend of mine who is into the study of, uh, of the German language uh, says that very, very quietly told me one day, the writing with P may be the oldest version um so don't say it loudly you may be even more right than you think well I, here in america even though most of us write it with a b most of us say it with a p if you listen very closely they'll say Habsburg, and it's with a p i think it's yes. probably just ingrained to us or it may just be the way we speak in english how we how we like certain consonants to to fit together all right another question coming in here oh no i lost it uh, oh, it was, what is your favorite book? I think I know the answer to that, but I'm going to let you answer it. What's your favorite book? My favorite book? I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got hundreds of books that I really, really like. Um, I would say, oh dear, this is nearly impossible. I would say among my favorite books is Moby Dick. Mm, oh, um, wow. I thought it was... It was incredibly dull when I was a child. And the older I got, the more I read it, because uh, the more I loved it. It's, it is not a, a crackling adventure, Jan. It's, uh, it's an encyclopedia of the world, of man, uh, of everything that exists. I love it. But this is, this is me, the, the old Edward. Um, I've got tons of other books that I read nearly every, every year. I think uh, Wuthering Heights, of um, of Emily Bronte is among the top. I love Brideshead revisited quite a lot, but uh, currently I'm rereading Dracula by Bram Stoker, which is oh, absolutely fantastic. That's one of my um, no, it, top it, it, top five books. I love Bram Stoker's Dracula. Love it. And I just I just tweeted about it today because it's very difficult, different from what people might imagine it is if they've never read it, it because. Uh, in, in addition to being an exciting, thrilling, uh, classical horror movie from the uh, novel from the 19th century, it's also very geeky and very nerdy because Bram Stoker makes a collage of uh, letters, newspaper articles, yes. dictated things, and there is an incredible amount of humor in there. You you laugh very often. So it's it's grim, it's dramatic, it's violent. It's very funny and it's it's theological. Very it's theological. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and the message is fantastic. But uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't suggest to give it to your children because 
you will sleep very badly for many, many months if you read this as a child, but it's absolutely fantastic. But books, I love books so much, uh, I, I couldn't even begin. Uh, what, what is your favorite book, Taylor? Well, the Bible first, the Summa second. That's unfair. Yeah. That's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Should have said the Bible. <laughs> um, I, I uh, God, what's up? I, I like Brideshead Revisited. Our family was just discussing that. Uh, Joy just reread it, and our daughters have read it. So we were discussing that uh, recently. Um, I like fr the original Frankenstein. Is also very good. Oh, yeah, very good. Uh, I love Dracula. Um, God, you've, got, you've got me thinking about those right now, and I need to go. I, of course, I love Tolkien. He's framed on the wall, oh. smiling at me right now, smoking his pipe. I thought you were going to say Tolkien. I thought you were going to say Tolkien oh. or, or Dune. I thought you might go with Dune. I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. See, see, no way to answer that question. Right. All right, let's take maybe uh, a couple more here and then um, and we'll sign off. By the way, everybody like this video. Make sure you do get the book, Habsburg Way. You can see on the screen, the link is below this video. You can click the link and get the book, The Habsburg Way. I finally got, I finally got a copy of it. It's wonderful. <laughs> Isn't that something as an author, you, you see people sometimes having the book before you and it's, it's a troubling experience. Yes. Um, Oh, Count of Monte Cristo is good too. Joy's reading that right now. Um, I never read that. You never read it? Okay. Uh, okay, here's a very technical question for you, Edward. And what are your thoughts on the separation of the Austro Hungarian Empire? Well, uh, quite often when people present me here in Rome to other ambassadors, they say this is the ambassador of Austria. And then they say, oh, I, I mean Hungary. Oh. So I think Austria, Austria and Hungary are very close. We, we live in a very similar world. We, we have similar tastes, similar food, similar architecture. The entire area of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire speaks a similar language. Uh, that's why Hungary is always quite close to its Visegrad neighbors and to our other neighbors. This is all from a very similar cultural background. Um, I, um, I, d I don't have an opinion. Austria-Hungary ended after the First World War. And uh, right now, um, I, I'll make a joke now. It's not a nice joke uh, for our Austrian neighbors. Um, you know, hung Hungary has two Habsburg ambassadors. It has me in, in, in Rome at the Vatican. It has my cousin Georg who is ambassador in Paris. And uh, the Hungarians are embracing their Habsburg um, legacy. Uh, the foreword of my book has been written by Viktor Orban, our prime minister. He grew up in a generation that still saw the Habsburgs as despots uh, that you had to fight against because of 1848 mostly and the terrible things the Habsburgs actually did after the revolt of 1848. Um, we, we, we called the Russians to crush the Hungarian rebellion. This is something you should never do. Um, and, uh, but nowadays, Hungary is beginning to embrace. And if you read the foreword of my book, it's a meditation on the complicated and intense relationship between Hungary and the Habsburgs. And the joke on the streets in Budapest is 
Austria, because you know in Austria, tourism is Habsburg everywhere. You, all people go to Vienna for the Habsburgs. Yes. So the joke is Austria is living off the Habsburgs and Hungary is living with the Habsburgs. Ah, I like that. I like that. All right, here's one final question. Uh, this is from Gonzalo Vicente. Hello, it was a medieval custom for noble families throughout Europe to wear a signet ring bearing a family's crest. Out of curiosity, do you still wear one? And is that a real custom? It is, it is a custom in Germany, and especially in Germany, sometimes also in Austria and in some other European countries, for aristocratic families to wear a signet ring with a coat of arms on it. That exists mostly northern Germany, northern the south, so much in Austria, not anymore. Um, my joke that I always make when people wear these rings and they ask me whether I have one, I say my coat of arms is too big for a signet ring. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> you could be like a rapper and have a gold chain with the with the crest like this big I, on your chest. I have a shawl. I have a I have a shawl with the word Habsburg on it. That's the closest. <laughs> and does it go? Does it go on the pinky ring? Where does that ring go? I'm just curious. I don't want one. I'm just curious. I I, I have no clue honestly because I never okay. wore something. Gotcha. But I suppose it's on the pinky ring. Yeah, so you can. I suppose it's on the pinky. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right well everyone should get uh the this excellent book it's wholesome it's encouraging it'll have you reflect on adding decorum piety and sophistication to a world that is becoming more and more base and degenerate and i think we need to elevate um our souls our our minds our bodies, our homes, and our families, and our marriages. And to this, I want to read a review from Slate, Slate Magazine, who are not our friends. This is a accidental endorsement from Slate.com, reviewing the book of Edward Habsburg, who we have with us today. Quote, the Habsburg way is a subtle but persistent case for monarchy as a political system and the Hungarian state run by Viktor Orban as the vehicle to pursue it. Habsburg contrasts the supposed honor, piety, and grace of his family's dynasty with what he thinks is the narcissism and self-dealing of modern democratic political leaders, end quote. That's a good blurb. <laughs> I, I, if I would have had it earlier, I would have put it on the book. <laughs> right on the front cover. Um, yeah, because what they're faulting you for here is contrasting honor, piety, and grace with our modern democratic political leaders. Um, I'll take the former any day, and I'd encourage our entire audience, everyone watching, to make the same choice and to assist themselves by getting your latest book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times with a foreword by Victor Orban. The link to purchase the book and get a copy of it is below us in the show notes. So I would encourage you, don't wait while you're thinking about it. Get the book, read it, share your thoughts with your spouse, your children, your family, and build a dynasty built on Christ. Any parting words you'd like to share with us? Edward Habsburg. Yes, I would encourage your 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 followers and your your fans 
to to follow me on Twitter. Ah. And I'm still in the lucky position that I can still interact with nearly everybody who reaches out to me. I answer direct messages and um, and I uh, still it, once I'll have double the number that I have now, it won't be possible anymore. But now it is still possible. So if you have questions or you want to reach out to me, the best place to do so is Twitter. And thank you very much for having me on your show. Taylor, you are spreading good vibes uh, in the United States. You're standing for the right principles. And, uh, and I think we had a very good conversation today. Absolutely. This is, this is a great conversation. And I just want to share your Twitter handle so everybody can find you. It's Edward Habsburg, no? Yes. Duh. <laughs> yes, there it is. I put it on the screen so that everybody can find you. You're very active on Twitter, very accessible. So I'd encourage everybody to reach out to you. And of course, get a copy of the book, The Habsburg Way. Well, we should end our discussion by turning our gaze and our thoughts to Our Lady, the Theotokos, the Blessed Virgin Mary. I think we should pray a Hail Mary together. Are you game for that? Yes. All right. Oremus nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in molieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Pray for us. Blessed Carl, pray for us. Pray for us. Nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Well, Edward Habsburg, thank you so much. Uh, you've written an excellent book. I'd also like everyone to get his children's illustrated book. It's Dubby, right? That's the title? Dubby, the double-headed eagle. Yeah, like the double eagle. And uh, thank you for your work with the Holy See, with Hungary, and all the hope that it provides us, especially in America, as we cast our eyes across the Atlantic and look to Europe, and we see that bright light, which is Hungary. It's an inspiration to us. So thank you for all your work there. And uh, we appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much, Taylor. All right. Remember, everyone, our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Godspeed. Like and subscribe.